This message was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. Let's listen to the Word of God from our Sunday morning service. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And as we come to what is probably for some one of the most difficult passages, but also one of the most glorious uh, passages in the New Testament. But you know, we, I appreciate Josh kicking off last week, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And most of us who are familiar with the New Testament enough knows how the Apostle Paul will often write in such a way that makes a clear distinction uh, of a transition uh, in his letter. And from chapter 3 to chapter 4 is one of those transitions, a very clear distinction that is drawn in the letter when the Apostle Paul ends the letter in chapter 3 with a prayer and a doxology and then transitions that to what often sometimes we call the, the practical applications of that. Maybe maybe we could call that the, the, the practical application. Maybe we could call chapters 4, 5, and 6 you know, application of what we've learned in chapters 1 through 3 because that's typically what we're used to hearing. But probably a better way for us to understand chapters 4, 5, and 6 of this letter is that it's not so much that just application in the sense that these are just principles that we should try to aspire to, right? Because that's kind of, that's sometimes, unfortunately, the way that we treat the application of God's Word in the Christian life is that we treat it like moralism, like moral principles that, you know, these are just better principles that we should try to aim to live by, right? But that's not the way that the Bible is talking about these things. The reality is that in chapter 4, when Paul begins to talk about the fact that we are to show humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance to one another in love, and we're to be diligent to pursue unity in the Spirit, those are not just things that we need to try to do. Those are actually implications. Those are results. The results of what happens when the power of God is working in our lives and we do have an understanding of the height, the depth, the breadth, and the length of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reason why Paul ended chapter 3 with that prayer. I mean, it's one thing for us to go through chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians and talk about the grace of God in salvation and in his, in the transformation of our lives and how he's, you know, he's called people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all different ethnicities and backgrounds and brought them underneath one head under the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one thing to hear all of that. It's quite another thing when the apostle prays at the end of chapter 3 and says, I'm praying that you will be filled with the power of God's Spirit to grab hold and understand. See, Word of God's being preached no matter what. So, I appreciate it, brother. It was a great supporting passage. But listen, but what I want you to understand is that the reason why that prayer at the end of chapter 3 is so important is because it's not enough that we understand these things in the content of chapters 1 through 3 from a distance. But Paul's prayer is that we understand them experientially and internally. 
That God's power grips us to the point. And and this is not some empty power. It's not just power in sort of some vague sense. The power that is prayed for is the power to understand the depth of God's love. To understand the mystery of redemption. To understand the, I mean, just the almost incomprehensible depth and height and length and breadth of the love of Christ. Because you know what? When you do that, you have unity in a church. Bottom line. So these things in chapter 4 and following are not just goals that we should aspire to. These are implications of what happens when that prayer is answered. Which is why a couple of weeks ago, I challenged us, all of us, to pray the contents of chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. We need to pray that for each other. You want to say, I don't know how to pray for each other. Start there. That is the prayer that we all need. The power of God to understand the depth of his love and the depth of his salvation. Because when we understand that, Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6 become a whole lot easier. Kind of reminds me last weekend, my family and I, we went hiking. And we were like the Clampets came to town, you know, we are anyway. And, uh, you know, we went down a trail, like a five-mile hike, you know, up to a waterfall. That was great, you know. And it was funny, like, you know, there was these people that probably spent two grand at REI on all this hiking gear and boots and water bottles and fancy backpacks. Not my family. We're in bathing suits, and my kids didn't even have shoes on. And, you know, and I think I had flip-flops on and whatever else. But it was funny, you know. We just kind of passed all these people. And we got to the waterfall, and, of course, the water's like 50-something degrees coming out of the mountain. And what's the first thing that my kids do? We jump in the water, you know, and people are looking. Like, oh my goodness, you know, and we did all this work to climb up the waterfall. You know, the boys, you know, I just knew Cinco was going to his feet swept out and fall down the rock and then we had to go to the ER or something, right? You know, and we did all this work to finally get to the top of this waterfall, scaling the rocks and all this stuff or whatever, get to the top. I'm so excited. And then my wife meets me there. I'm like, what are you doing? She said, well, there's a trailer on the side of here. I'm like, oh man, are you serious? We did all that work and she just walked up the trail, you know? But that's the thing, you know, is that, you know, the reason why churches and the reason why people struggle in unity, these kinds of things, is because we haven't understood that God has clearly laid out a pathway for us of grace. He's clearly made things easier for us to pursue and to accomplish these things by a prayer that's specifically tied for us to understand the content of what's in this book. We struggle. Because we take the hard way on things, you know? When, when Paul's saying, no, 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 no. We need the power of God's grace and His Spirit to bring us understanding. Because when we understand the love of Christ, unity, service, humility, sacrifice, love, those things are a whole lot easier, right? Can I get an amen? Yeah, there you go. So, In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul talks about walking worthy of our calling. You know, walk is a pretty important concept in the book of Ephesians. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that before Christ we walked according to the course of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says that now that we've been saved, God has given us a new walk, a new lifestyle that we live now. And so the walk that we are to have is a walk that is worthy of the calling. What is that calling? Well, we've learned all throughout the first three chapters that God has determined that, that through his work of salvation, he is 
going to bring everything underneath the sovereign reigning work, uh, sovereign kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the beginning point of that is in the church. God has chosen the church to be the visible demonstration of the kingdom of God. What what living underneath the kingship of Christ is to look like. This is the reason why the admonitions about unity and, and patience and tolerance with each other is so important. Because these are characteristics of what it looks like to live underneath the reigning feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about how we are to, you know, God uses the church to display the glory of his grace. I mean, think about this. Everybody in here, I told you this before. What I love about joining the church is you all have to admit that we're messed up to get in here, right? You know, hi, I am messed up, you know. But because the Lord takes us messed up rebels and gives us grace and transforms our lives. And as a result of that, now he begins to then gives us his spirit to understand the concepts of grace, to understand the depths of his love so that we can exercise these benefits inside the church and clearly demonstrate to the world what the kingdom of God looks like. Very important. And so that's what's so important about understanding chapters 1 through 3 and getting us to chapter 4 is because when we when we do have a knowledge of God's power, when we have a real experiential knowledge of the depth of Christ's love, it is powerful and it makes an impact in the life of the church. People do, I mean, listen, when people understand things, they it makes them do things, right? My grandmother used to keep a plaque on her, on her desk at work. It said, if people who people who don't believe that the dead come back to life ought to be around here around quitting time, right? That when we know something, it, it does something to our actions, right? And so when we know the depth of the love of Christ, it does encourage us to be loving, to speak truth in love, as the rest of chapter 4 will start talking about speaking truth in love, being patient and being gentle, being humble, not gossiping, serving and being kind. These things flow naturally out of the Spirit of God's work in our hearts and lives. And so the question for us this morning is, well, why? Why are we to be humble? Why are we to be patient? Why are we to be striving? I love that word in the first part of chapter 4. We're to strive for unity and the bond of peace. Why? I mean, it's so much easier just to, you know, focus on ourselves, be petty, complain, grumble, blame other people for what's wrong with us, right? That's what we understand from the world. That's what we expect from the world. But instead... You know, we are commanded to do these things, but why is that? Well, the answer has already been provided for us somewhat in chapters 1 through 3 that we talked about because of why God chose to use the church to display the glory of his grace and the glory of Christ. But Paul also expounds even further on the why part of this in verses 7 through 10. He kind of breaks down the mechanics of exactly how this happens, which is what is fascinating for us by quoting from an Old Testament passage. The Old Testament passage that he quotes from is Psalm chapter 68, which is part of what we've been reading this morning, even in our preparation for worship. And so as we come to the text this morning, I want to, I do want you to understand that, that you could spend weeks on Psalm 68 and its relationship here, because one of the challenges that we often have with New Testament writers sometimes is that when they, when they quote a passage, like for example, in this case, 
The Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. But when he quotes that, he's not just targeting just that verse by itself, which is very common and a very common characteristic in the New Testament writers, that oftentimes when they quote an Old Testament text, they don't necessarily mean just that verse. They mean the broader context. In other words, really they have in mind the entirety of Psalm 68, right? And so that's one of the things that makes this a little bit of a challenge, and, and it's a bit of a complex argument that Paul is making. But boy, when it's understood, it's absolutely beautiful, and it's very humbling. So as we've learned in chapter 4, starting in this, we've learned here that, that the call that God gives us by his grace, it's not just for our salvation, but in that God's grace is not given to us just to save us, to justify us by faith. But specifically also, grace is given, it is, grace is administered by God. Grace is continually given by God in order for the church to carry out its purpose. You heard what I just said. We're saved by grace, but yet God continues to work grace in our lives so the church can carry out its mission. The church can carry out its purpose. That's why we always need the working of God's power in us to keep working in us, sanctifying us, you know, calling our minds to attention of, of things where we're, you know, where we're not glorifying Christ, where we're not seeking Christ, and where we're not serving Him and reflecting His glory around us. So we need the work of grace continually. And so, so many times, you know, the church, we love things like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? You know, by grace you've been saved by, you know, you know by grace, you know, is, not, is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? We love those kinds of verses. The problem oftentimes, though, is we treat grace like it's a passive concept. We treat grace sometimes as if it was something that was done once for us in the past, and that's a, more of a passive concept, versus understanding that the concept of grace is active. God is always working grace in his people. And we need that kind of work. It's the grace that transforms us, it sanctifies us, and it protects us in righteousness until the final day that our Lord Jesus Christ returns. Grace is active. Grace begins the work of God changing our hearts, calling us to repentance and faith, but it keeps working through God's Spirit to transform us and grow us into Christ-likeness. And so God saved us, He called us, He transformed us, He did all of these things and to accomplish something in this, and specifically here, the grace of spiritual gifting that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4 is to accomplish this work of preserving the unity of the Spirit and love towards one another in verses 2 through 6 there of chapter 4. So grace is needed for our redemption, but grace is also needed to carry out our mission as Christ's body. Very important. So here's what I want you to understand about these verses, and especially when you read the text here, you understand, and um, not only is this goal for unity here, but even in the text we read, verses 7 through 10, and then beyond that, in verse 11, Paul talks about the various giftings that we have in the church of different offices of pastors, apostles, prophets, evangelists. But notice what he says in verses 12 and 13, when talking about the gifting of the Spirit. That all of this is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying there are two things that we need to know about. First of all, 
Let me even back up here to verse 7 for you for just a moment. In, in Ephesians 4, 7, he says to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So there's two things that we need to understand about, the, about this working of grace in our life. First of all, gr- God works grace. He gives the gift of grace and specific gifts of his spirit into every single believer. Everyone who is a genuine believer in Christ, according to Ephesians 4, 7, to each one of us, grace was given according to this allotment, to this, this portion that Christ has given. Now, that's very important. Because what it means is that not a single person who is a genuine believer, there's not a single person who is a genuine believer who has not experienced the gifting of some measure of divine grace and gifting by God. Now, the second thing that's important about this is that when you read things like verses 12 and 13, what we also learn is that every bit of gifting that we have received is for a single purpose. A single purpose. It doesn't matter whether God calls someone to be a pastor or God calls someone to the gift of hospitality. It doesn't matter what our gifting is. There's a single purpose. And in verses 12 and 13, Paul helps us to understand that the single purpose of is this, that we are to build up the body of Christ. That's it. The single purpose that God uses for gifting us is for building up the body of Christ in three ways. He says. First, by promoting the unity of the faith in verse 12, by the, by, by the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 13, and the spiritual maturity of one another. That's what these gifts are for, that the gifts are given to build up the body and to promote knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, unity of the faith, spiritual maturity of one another. No spiritual gift, no portion of Christ's gifts is for one's private benefit Essentially, the Lord gifts every true Christian with the gifts of grace in order to build up his body, to build up his people to spiritual maturity. That's why he gives it. So if you're a genuine believer, God has gifted you with the gifts of grace by his, you know, from Christ, sharing his spirit with you, sharing his giftedness with you for the single purpose that that is to be used to build up one another in Christ, to grow each other in maturity. This is why we're making such a big push about discipleship in this church, because it is our mission. If you belong to Christ, you, are, you and I are expected to invest in lives around us because our desire is that is we promote the spiritual maturity of one another in Christ. We want to see each other grow. We want to see each other mature. We want to see each other abandon idols of this age and glorify Christ by demonstrating to the world what living under the kingship of Jesus looks like. And we got to help each other do that. And that's why God gives this church. And so we come here to, and by the way, I'm just going to confess to you that I have no clue where I'm at my notes. Probably way over time here. So we're going to have to just kind of, you know, not cut and run, but kind of cut and do something anyway. So, but in Psalm 68, you have this beautiful quotation that Paul almost kind of seems to make him passive. But it's, it, it, it's far from passing at all, because what Paul does here is talks about specifically how is it that the church is gifted with this, with Christ's gift. 
what is that? How did it happen? And what does it look like? And so then he pulls in Psalm 68 to do this. And there's two things that I'm going to try to narrow this down just really just to, to two things that the Apostle Paul does by pulling in this passage of, of Psalm 68. First is he ties, and this is what's so cool, he ties the distribution of God's grace or the distribution of his gift of, uh, of I guess you could say, of his grace through the accomplishment of Jesus being a victorious warrior. In other words, the, the ability or the reason why God was able to distribute or Christ distributed gifts to his church is for the, the reason he was able to do that. Or the Bible treats this here as his accomplishment as a divine warrior. He, he, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ defeats an enemy, wins a battle, takes the spoils of war, and distributes it to everybody who belongs in his kingdom. That's the first thing that we have to understand about this passage. The second thing we understand is that the grace that's distributed by Christ, this grace gift itself to the church, has to be understood in light of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, about the church's relationship to the temple, and Christ's relationship, his body to the temple. Okay, so that's really the two things to to help us really navigate and understand Paul's quotation here. Those are the two things we have to understand. Christ is a victorious warrior champion who distributes the gifts of the spoils of war. At the same time, Christ's body is the temple. And by sharing his spirit, we share in the temple of Christ. Those are the two things that are set up before us in this quotation. And so the first one we'll tackle here is Jesus as the divine as the divine warrior. The church has been given a measure of grace according to Christ's gift, according to Ephesians 4, 7 here. And we must understand Jesus' victory at the cross was a wartime victory that made him, and this is what, I know, I know some of you men are really going to love this, right? But it makes Jesus the ultimate warrior of God. The kids love to watch Ultimate War. Is it oh, no, it's Ultimate Beastmaster or whatever or something like that? You know, but, you know these guys are doing things on handles and bars that I could never do, right? Um, but we love the, you know, we, we we love especially men. You know, we love warriors and victories and battles and those kinds of things, right? And yet, what happens here is the Apostle Paul de- depicts the Lord Jesus Christ as being the ultimate warrior of God. How cool is that, right? And so when you look here, in, in, in Psalm 68, verse 18, Paul quotes this. You, he says, you have ascended on high. You've led captive your captives. Basically, you've led those taken in captivity. You have received gifts from among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. And so that may be a little confusing when we read that from Psalm 68, 18 by itself, but I appreciate Tommy arranging passages earlier around Psalm 68 in our worship this morning, because in our, our time of uh, worship through singing this morning, because you, you kind of have to understand Psalm 68 from its broader context. And so in verse 1 of Psalm 68, the first thing we learn is this psalm is ultimately about a call for God to rescue his people by destroying Israel's enemies, which are his enemies as well. And you see that in in the very first verse of Psalm 68 that we read earlier, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. On top of that, the psalm recalls, though, God's battle victories in the past. 
In fact, it pulls in language from the Exodus event. It also pulls in language from the conquest, the Canaanite conquest. Remember, under the leadership of Joshua, how they defeated the Canaanites as the Israelites were occupying the land. But particularly what's in focus here is specifically God's destruction of Egypt. In Psalm 68, God himself is celebrated as a divine warrior when he was the greater king who toppled Pharaoh, who promoted himself as divine. It's one of the things that I love about the way that excuse me, Exodus chapter 15 is set up. You remember that? Exodus 14, the collapse of the Red Sea, and all of a sudden all these bodies of horses and dead dead soldiers, uh, Egyptian shoulders are washing up on the shoreline. And the first thing that the people of Israel say is, our God is a man of war. He has toppled the greatest kingdom known to men on the earth. And he's celebrated. God himself is celebrated as the divine victor. It's one of the reasons why the early church called Christ, Christus, victor. Christ is the victorious one. And so here in Psalm 68, there is all of this language, especially in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 here, where where he's talking about how the Lord marched them through the wilderness. How the Lord basically, imagine this imagery for just a moment, because this will make verses verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians 4 make a whole lot more sense for you. Psalm 68 treats this, that God himself was in his habitation of Mount Sinai, God dwelling at his holy mountain. And the Lord descends from Mount Sinai, travels across the wilderness, and then, if you remember, devastates the Egyptians. Remember the plagues, right? All of those plagues come upon them, and then finally, Pharaoh is broken. He wants no more. And as a result of that, what does he do? God himself then, under through the leadership of Moses, he empowers Moses and Aaron here, but God himself is the one who then leads Israel back to where? Back to Mount Sinai. He walks before them in this pillar of cloud and fire, and he leads his people back to the mountain to be able to worship him, right? That was the whole purpose of the reason why. You remember what God told Moses? I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to rescue them, and I'm going to bring them back to this mountain. They're going to worship you. And so here you have this language in the psalm of God descending and ascending, which is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter four, verses nine and ten. Here, right? And so all of this is when you even when you look in verses uh, in, in Psalm sixty-eight, verse eleven. The Lord gives command, and the women proclaim uh, good tidings. Uh, the women who proclaim uh, proclaim good tidings are a great host. It, it reminds us of the of Miriam, Moses's uh, sister, and the women who are singing about the victorious conquest of God over the Egyptians. And then you get down to verse seventeen of Psalm sixty-eight, and it says, "The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, as at Sinai." In holiness. And then you have ascended on high. You've led your captives. You've led those who were taken by captivity. And you have received gifts from among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. What is he saying? Picture this for just a moment. If a king goes out to battle, if a, if a, if a warrior goes out and he conquers somebody, what does he get? He gets the spoils of war. He gets to pillage everything that they have on any coins, 
anything that they have on them, whatever it may be, weaponry, whatever it may be. And he gets to take all those things and take it back to his place where he started from. God, this is exactly how God is being pictured. Do you remember what happened? Uh, this even occurred in Genesis chapter 15 when God, when God was promising and prophesying all this to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And it occurred later as well in, in the book of Exodus. Do you remember how that when the Israelites finally left, when they left Egypt, they left there with what? Pretty much everything the Egyptians owned. The Egyptians were so happy to get rid of them that when the Israelites left, they left with the possessions of the Egyptians. They bankrupted the kingdom. They emptied the kingdom. They took their gold, their silver, their fabrics, their livestock. Why? Because he did all of that to show his generosity, to show the power of his redemption, the power of his salvation, and brought them back to the foot of Mount Sinai to worship him. Isn't that amazing? And so the problem, though, and please hang on to this, the problem, however, is that rather than worshiping God at the foot of the mountain, the people of Israel committed the greatest act of spiritual adultery, and they worshiped a God of fertility in the image of a calf. Specifically, here's the part that's most upsetting about that. It was a golden calf. You want to guess where they got the gold from? It came from Egypt. It was gold that was given to them as a gift of God's divine warrior conquest. And they took the very gifts that God had given and they fashioned a God of their own name. This becomes the pattern of Israel's history throughout the rest of the Old Testament story of taking the blessings and the gifts of God and using, using them for their own idolatrous, greedy, immoral, and selfish purposes. This is why the Apostle Paul warns the church in 1 Corinthians saying, don't forget what they did in the wilderness and how God killed so many of them as a result of that. Don't commit treason and idolatry by taking the very good things that God has given you and using them for idolatrous purposes. And so with that context of Psalm 68 in mind, you can see how the pieces begin to come, come together in Ephesians 4, uh, 8 through 10. The, the, you know, for us, you know, the enslaver for us is not uh, Egypt. The enslaver is Satan and sin. The Bible talks about our need as, as Jews and Gentiles. Every human being is enslaved to sin. Paul talks about that we need to come to our senses and escape the snare of the devil. We've been held captive to do his will. In 2 Corinthians 4, Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving. Romans chapter 6 says that we are enslaved to sin. But God himself launches a final rescue mission through his son to gather those who were enslaved, to rescue them from the power of the evil one and bring us to his holy mountain, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion to worship at his feet in the companies of the other redeemed and the myriads of hosts that worship. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, God launched the final and ultimate rescue mission. As Charles Wesley wrote in the glorious hymn, O for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. I love that. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. 
His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avail for me. You remember what we said in chapters 1 through 3, that the goal of all history is for all of creation to be subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the entire goal of all history is eventually that everything underneath the feet of Christ, that everything be subjected underneath the feet of Christ. But the beginning point of that is what Paul tells us in Colossians 2.15, that when he, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public, a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him that is Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he, on that cross, he defeated the enemies. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. He defeated the power of sin. Because that's, that was our Egypt. Jesus is the victorious, conquering, war hero king. What an amazing understanding. So this helps us to better understand the giving of Christ's gift. You see, the way that Psalm 68 is used here, and the way the Apostle Paul pictures this, is that the Lord Jesus himself is the one who descended and then... Uh, and then accomplish this victory and then ascends again with the spoils of war that he's, that he's accomplished. And so the way that we understand the giving of the gifts here is that by his disarming the false and rival kingdoms of Satan, as a result here, he rescues his people, he gathers them in his body, he gathers them in his temple, and then he turns around and takes all those spoils of war, the victories of him, the gifts and the victory of his conquest, and then he distributes it to those who are in his kingdom. Isn't that cool? That's why Ephesians 4, 7 here says that he gives us a measure of Christ's gift. The gifts first belong to Jesus. They first belong to Christ. And then when we join to Christ, he then shares what belongs to him. So neat. We share in the riches of Jesus' conquest. Jesus first inherits the gift. He leads us triumphantly to his temple, and there he gives us the gift of his spirit. On the day of Pentecost, Peter explained the giving of the Holy Spirit and the witness of the people speaking in tongues and in various languages. He says in Acts 2.33, Therefore, you know, Jesus, having, ex having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. Is all part of the victorious conquest and the spoils of war. But it's interesting in verses 9 through 10, what we also learn here is that this victory of the Lord Jesus Christ came through humiliation. That's what's so interesting about the language of descending and ascending. In all this talk about victory, in verses 9 and 10, Paul quickly reminds us that Jesus' victory came through humiliation and suffering. First, Jesus' ascent and descent here is spoken about in terms of his descent from glory to the incarnation of taking on human flesh, his accomplishing of the victory at the cross, and then his, his glorification that, recurs, that, that occurs on as a result of his victory at the cross. Christ's resurrection was a testimony before all the world that everything Christ said and everything that Christ did was vindicated and accepted by God the Father. And so here, Paul notes that, you know, well, I guess you could say, the Lord Jesus, who is divine, 
is the one who was already in glory and yet takes on human flesh, takes on this humiliation and descends. He comes down in order to accomplish salvation, to accomplish the work that you and I could never do. To accomplish the work, you know the only thing that we're really good at is making a mess of everything. Just being honest. Can't save ourselves. We can't. It doesn't matter if we're given a thousand lifetimes. We'll never be able to keep God's word. There's too much corruption in our hearts. And so Paul says that now in verse nine, what's this expression mean? He ascended. What does it mean? Except he also descended. And it, it, it's it, it's it's interesting because um, the the way that you know some some of our Bibles you know, will translate uh, Ephesians four and nine by saying lower parts of the earth. But I, I agree with. Other scholars like Harrison, Dumbo, and Bart, and Carson, that's better translated, he went to earth below. A better translation. In other words, he descended. It's meant to be in juxtaposition to where he was at. He was in heaven, and then he went to earth below. And then as a result of his conquest, he has now ascended back into the heavens, and there he has set in motion all of the process of the Father's plan of putting everything beneath his feet. And no other passage better explains any of this, obviously, than Ephesians 2, 5 through 11. And most of you, most of us are probably familiar with that passage. Have this attitude, this mindset in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought it was not something, thought it wasn't robbery, or, you know, or did not regard equality with God as something to be taken advantage of. But I love this. Christ emptied himself. He laid aside all of his divine privileges just so he could walk with us and become the perfect substitute for redemption for us. And by doing that, when he died on that cross, he disarmed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and the powers of the evil one. He broke the power of canceled sin. He broke the enslavement that was on our yokes, on our head, that when we place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we believe in what was accomplished on that cross, it's like Christian's vision of walking up that hill in Pilgrim's Progress. All of a sudden, that massive burden is gone. And it goes tumbling down the hill. You experience the victory of Christ. But we can't forget something here, that God has chosen the church to showcase the visible reign of the Lord Jesus Christ before the world. The church is his body. The church is meant to be the visible reality of the living Christ on earth. He first begins to fill all things by the filling of his body, his church, with what he possesses. And what is it that Christ possesses? The fullness of the Spirit of God. Jesus distributes his gift of the Holy Spirit to his people, which is part of God's wonderful grace. And so, that's part of what I meant to you earlier by saying, not only do we have to understand Psalm 68, 18 here as a quotation and meaning of Christ being victorious in his wartime victory, but also we have to realize that throughout the letter of Ephesians, the church is called the body of Christ. And that's not Paul just kind of using... A cutesy term, this sounds pretty neat, the body of Christ, right? That's not what he's doing. The reason he's calling it the body of Christ is because the church is synonymous with being Christ's body. We are the visible reality of, of, of 
the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has given his spirit and we share his spirit. We have a part. The Holy Spirit is not just some random third-party entity just kind of hanging out here looking to empower somebody. The Holy Spirit is, first of all, sent by the Father and the Son. And the Lord Jesus says, the Spirit will testify of me. The Lord Jesus is just as much involved in distributing and sending his Spirit. Why? Because when we belong to his Spirit, in Christ who is the fullness of the... Let me back up. You remember uh, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I'm going to do what? I'll rebuild it in three days. And John makes the comment later, and he says, you know what, it was after all this we realized something, that he meant his body. That his temple now is the body. You see, in the Old Testament, the last time we ever saw the Spirit of God was in Ezekiel chapter 10. In Ezekiel chapter 10, here was the vision. Ezekiel, Ezekiel basically showed a vision of the glory of God being put on a wagon cart and being hauled out of Jerusalem. And the Spirit of God never showed up again until the moment when the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized. Matthew and Luke record that they saw the Spirit of God descending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? Because of his victorious conquest, because of his perfect righteousness, because in him was the fullness of God, you know what happened? The the presence and the power of the Spirit of of God never left him. And the Spirit of God rose him from the grave as as a testimony to his power and to the authenticity of his entire ministry. And so when Christ Christ ascends back, what does he say? I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my Spirit to you. And so what happens is, You know, when the Lord Jesus Christ ascends back, he then sends his Holy Spirit to his church who now share the same spirit with him, which is why we are called the temple of the living God. Why? Because Christ's body is the fullness of the is Christ's body is the fullness of the presence of the spirit of God. And when he shares his spirit, guess what? The church becomes the temple of the living God. Something. So what does all this mean? Well, when you go back and you read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 through 22, he says that we, the church is, we, he's working in us. The whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. When Paul says grace is given by the measure of Christ's gift, he's saying two things. Jesus has the power to give it, and it is his gift to give as he shares. It is his spirit, his victory, his spoils of conquest, his inheritance, his triumph, his glory. He shares all of that because it first belonged to him. Since Jesus shares his Holy Spirit with us, we're now tied to him, we're joined to his body, we're filled with his spirit, and he begins the work of sanctification where we begin to take on his character, when we begin to exhibit his holiness as his radiant bride. We are the rebellious ones. That Psalm 68, 18 mentioned. We're the rebellious ones that he rescued. We're the rebellious ones that he rescued. So you know why? So that he could bring us into his temple and we could gaze at the beauty of his glorious presence. Well, grace is given for the whole church. 
And I think this is something that we have to really keep in mind because as I mentioned to you earlier, grace, uh, the gift of grace, uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit here has a very specific purpose to it. And it's what Ephesians 4 talks about. You see, a true knowledge of God's purpose and our redemption, knowing the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he has saved us, is what is going to enable us to be able to accomplish the mission and the purpose that God has set before us. Jesus made this very clear. He said, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's interesting because the unity aspect that is talked about in the beginning of chapter 4 is all about, is predicated first and foremost on all of us truly understanding the depth of the love of Christ and the depth of his victory in releasing us from the power of bondage and darkness and sin and slavery and death and Satan himself. And that once that happens, we then, he fills us with his spirit, and then we begin to take on his character. And that what is interesting about his character is that we also learn that prior to glory, there is suffering. That prior to exaltation, there is humiliation. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, it, it means that you know, all of us want to run to glory. Right? All of us want to be able to quickly get the prize at the end. But what God is also doing by giving us his spirit and sharing us his spirit is he is helping us to take on the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what were the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ? Not to serve, but what? Excuse me, excuse me. Not to be served, but to what? Serve. Yeah, some of y'all are like, well, I kind of remember that verse the other way. It's kind of like I told my kids the other day. I said, y'all know what the golden rule is? That he who has the gold makes the rules, right? So I was trying to encourage them as to the reason why, you know, they have to listen to me, right? So, so sorry, I had that backwards. But anyway, but the reality is that Christ came not to be served, but to serve. Christ came in love, in humility, and he, everything that the Lord Jesus Christ did was for the benefit of somebody else. It wasn't Jesus that needed righteousness. It wasn't Jesus that needed salvation. It wasn't Jesus that needed healing or needed a physician. We're the ones who needed that. And so when you take on, when you are given the spirit of Christ, you take on the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means not selfishness, but selflessness. That's what we have to, that's what I was saying earlier about taking the easier pathway. The easier pathway is to be steadfast and in prayer that God would give us the understanding of the depth of the love of Christ, that he would give us the depth of understanding his glorious redemption. Because when we do that, when we understand that Christ has disarmed the rulers, he has accomplished and conquered, and that he is now distributing and sharing the gifts with all those who belong to his kingdom. And when we understand the depth of all of this, you look around and you're going, how can I be so selfish? How can I gossip? How can I tear other people down? How can I just be a spectator in the church and think that I'm doing my religious duty just by watching a sermon or listening or something? But, you know, but instead, we go, Lord Jesus, help me to, to experience the fullness of understanding your love so that way I can take on your characteristics and serve and love my brother and sister in Christ. It transforms us. 
transforms us. I just want to close with this. Each part of us, each member, I, I wanted to look at some other passages, but, but I just want to close really with looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 13. A, a passage that a lot of us are very familiar with, but really helps us to understand what this gifting, this giving of Christ's Spirit, this giving of His grace, working in us, what it looks like. Romans 12, 4 through 13, Paul says, For just as, just as we have many members in one body, and all are the members, excuse me, and all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of one's faith, if service to his servicing, or he who teaches to his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, and he who gives to give freely. And he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Look at this. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. You see, all those things are in reaction, in response to understanding the depth of the love and the work of Christ. And so, this is what happens. So, everything that will go from chapters 4, 5, and 6 from here. What you need to understand about chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians is that all of this is what happens when God's power works in us. This is, the, this is the result of what happens when God's work of power and grace works in us. This is what happens when we know the love of Christ. This is what happens when we are filled with the Spirit of Christ. The church is not for spectating. Anyone can be religious. The church is the body of Christ to be on display. It is to display the heavenly, the heavenly reality of Christ's kingdom on the earth. When we this assembly right here, think about this. This assembly right here is to be the testimony before the world that Christ is king. And we do that by taking on the characteristics of Christ. We learn to serve each other, show humility, preference, persevere in unity, and find ways to esteem one another as more important than ourselves. We do that. And when we do that, and the, and the world looks on the outside and he sees a bunch of old people, young people, different ethnicities, backgrounds, people, I mean, calling each other brother and sister and striving together in unity. The world looks at that and says, man, what happened there? And we can respond back saying, what happened here? The power of God and the giving of Christ's spirit that brought unity in the faith. And so, Father, as we marvel and think about the work of your your work of redemption and what you have accomplished and the depth of your love and Lord we understand that these things are not private enterprises 
These are not concepts, Lord, just for us to be able to hold to ourselves and we, we keep these gifts for ourselves. But Lord, you have given the, this wonderful and bountiful gifts of your spirit. And Lord, placing within us, Lord, a, a measure of giftedness so we can serve one another and promote unity and, and the knowledge of you and spiritual maturity for one another. Father, your, the giving of your spirit, Lord, was not to be used for ourselves, but to be used for one another, to build it up and encourage one another. Father, help us to understand that. Help us to have knowledge, a real knowledge and understanding of what you have accomplished, and Lord, and of the depth of your love, so that way we can live in the power of your spirit and be able to display the attributes of Christ before this world. Father, help us to do these things because it's what you've called us to do. You've called us to live in a manner that's worthy of our calling. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your victory. We thank you, God, that you disarmed and broke every power that would keep us enslaved and on the course of hell. And we pray, Lord, now that you have given us life and have given us fellowship with you, that we would walk in that manner that is walk in the manner that is worthy of this calling you placed in our lives. Help us to serve in the way that you served us. Help us to love, Lord, in the way you loved us. Help us, God, to show the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. At Covenant, we strive to provide a fellowship that is sound in doctrine, biblical in practice, and loving in our relationship with each other and the community. For more from our elders and teachers, please visit us at covenantbapt.org. That's covenantbapt.org for teachings, articles, and more information about our community.